Welcome to the Medici Podcast. This is episode 23, The Calm Before the Storm. Patreon subscriber, patron DNH2. And as always, be sure to go to MedicePodcast.com to find bibliographies, images, genealogies, and more. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate or review us, especially on iTunes, which is still my number one source of new listeners. And with that, on July 19, 1476, Pierre Francesco passed away. He was the renegade Medici that his contemporaries described as, quote, a bit of a backwoodsman, and who never showed much real interest in business, politics, or art, although his contemporaries did compliment him on his good manners, at least. With his death, family history repeated. Just as happened when his own father, Cosimo's brother Lorenzo, died. Pierre Francesco's two sons were left sitting on a fortune and shares in the Medici Bank. But they were too young legally to be independent. So Lorenzo took in Pierre Francesco's sons, 14-year-old Lorenzo and 9-year-old Giovanni, and had them raised alongside his own children. Just like how Cosimo had Pierre Francesco raised in his own household. And yes, I know it's inconvenient that Pierre Francesco also named his son Lorenzo. So from here on, I will refer to Lorenzo the way Florentines would have referred to him at the time, as Lorenzo di Pierre Francesco, Lorenzo son of Pierre Francesco. No doubt Lorenzo, that is Lorenzo the Magnificent, was acting in a way that would have been expected of any patriarch of a family. But he also eventually showed he had his ulterior motives, namely his designs on his cousin's wealth. After all, having clients all across Tuscany and helping fund artists and academic institutions is expensive. Also, the Medici Bank under Lorenzo's watch was frankly struggling but we'll cover both of these things in later episodes. For now, though, it's enough to admit that Lorenzo did not repay the debts he owed to the boy's father, and instead forcibly borrowed money from the boy's accounts. Also, he barely managed the properties and business assets P.F. Francesco's sons inherited, to the point that the two boys demonstrably lost a fair amount of profits and would find once they grew up and could manage their own affairs that they owed the government of Florence a hefty chunk of unpaid taxes. The historian Mary Hollingsworth, who is admittedly a little uncharitable in some of her interpretations of the Medici family's actions, outright accuses Lodenzo of acting out of greed. And perhaps he was, or maybe he was driven more by desperation 
as the Medici Bank floundered. Even so, I do wonder if his decisions were colored by resentment against Pier Francesco, who was at best a faulty link in the family chain. The only thing we know for certain is that Lorenzo constantly needed money, and unfortunately his helpless cousins had lots of it. In the meantime, the man who would prove to be Lorenzo's nemesis was about to come into his own. This man's name was Francesco della Rovere. Honestly, he couldn't have been any more different from the cultured athletic merchant prince that Lorenzo took care to present himself as. Instead, Francesco was a heavy-set, toothless man who was born the son of a fisherman living in a poor coastal village in the Republic of Genoa. Francesco used the church as his ladder to climb out of poverty. He was elected Pope on August 9, 1471, perhaps as a deliberate rebuke to his predecessor, Paul II, who was a Venetian nobleman whose papal lifestyle was so lavish it helped put the Holy See into debt. Francesco chose the name Sixtus IV, but even his surname as a layman, Della Rovere, was just an affectation he picked. Originally, he bore the name De Savona, which just designated that he was from a place near the town of Savona. Once he reached the upper echelons of the church, though, he and his family took the name Della Rovere, with Rovere meaning oak tree. It was an appropriately lofty-sounding name for an up-and-coming dynasty. And to go with the name, Sixtus was determined to make his family Italian nobility, with lands and power that would last long after he was dead. Now, Sixtus was far from the first pope to engage in nepotism. And, in fact, when it came to other things, Sixtus IV had a good reputation for genuine piety and humility. However, his determination to use the power of the papacy to prop up his relatives was shocking, even to his contemporaries and to modern historians. Still, I think you have to look at it from Sixtus's perspective. He was a poor boy who struck it big, but now he was surrounded by predatory courtiers and hangers-on, who would gladly send his loved ones packing back to their fishing village, or worse, the minute he died. And, of course, in the papal court, which was just as dangerous and cutthroat as any royal court, his family were the only ones who could be trusted to fully support him. The Pope and his family were both dependent on each other, and strengthening his family could only, in turn, strengthen his reign. At first, Sixtus viewed Lorenzo as a friend, maybe even a potential ally. When Sixtus IV ascended to the papacy, Lorenzo led a diplomatic mission from Florence to the new pope personally. The pope, in turn, welcomed him warmly, even referring to him as a son. Things started to go awry pretty quickly, however. Lorenzo personally asked the Pope to consider making his brother Giuliano a cardinal. Even though Giuliano never showed much inclination toward a career in the church, Lorenzo was apparently already looking at ways outside the bank to extend his family's influence. 
and perhaps as Giuliano feared, it was a way for Lorenzo to get his ambitious little brother out of the way. Either way, Sixtus instead gave the two open cardinal spots to his nephews, Giuliano della Rovere and Pietro Riario. He even granted Cardinal Pietro the position of Archbishop of Florence, a key post that Lorenzo would have preferred to give to one of his clients. A pragmatist as always, though. Lorenzo let it slide. But this would not be the last time that Sixtus's nepotism would slam into Lorenzo's plans like a train into a cardboard box on the track. The Pope quickly made another of his nephews, Leonardo della Rovere, the prefect of Rome, and married him to an illegitimate daughter of King Ferrante of Naples, who was starting to feel out a possible alliance with the papacy. Next, Pope Sixtus looked toward northern Italy to further enrich his family, specifically the region of the Romana, which bordered Florentine territory from the east. Ostensibly under the Romagna was effectively ruled by local nobles, whose titles and territories could be snatched up and given to the Pope's family members easily enough. Sixtus then gave his nephew Girolamo a village in the northern Romagna, which brought with it the title of Count. Girolamo's brother, the new Cardinal Pietro, personally negotiated a marriage between Girolamo and Duke Galeazzo Sforza's daughter, Catherine. Overnight, the Della Rovales and Iriarios had joined the ranks of Italy's Blue Bloods. Soon enough, an opportunity arose that would eventually give both the Pope and Lorenzo massive headaches. The city of Amola, also in the Romagna, was ruled by its own signore, Tadeo Manfredi, but he was hugely unpopular and genuinely afraid that he would be killed by an assassin or in a revolt. So he agreed to sell control of the city to the Duke of Milan in exchange for a quieter, safer territory. Both Pope Sixtus and Lorenzo had a stake in Imola, which was a strategically valuable city that lied right on one of the key trade routes through northern Italy, and was right on the border between papal and Florentine territory. Invoking his personal relationship with the Duke of Milan, Lorenzo negotiated a treaty between the Signora of Florence and the Duke that would allow Florence to buy Imola from Milan. However, Sixtus had already learned about the impending sale and decided he wanted to take advantage in order to give his beloved nephew an upgrade from a hamlet to an important city. When he heard instead about the Duke of Milan and Florence's agreement, he flew into a rage. Immediately, he wrote to the Duke, trumpeting, quote, Oh, my son, listen to your father's counsel. Depart not from the church, for it is written, Whoever separates from thee must perish. To his own cardinals and courtiers, the Pope ranted that Lorenzo, by daring to try to buy Imola, was being ungrateful. That the Pope had approached Lorenzo like a loving father, only for Lorenzo to shove him away. Without any context, you might think the Pope was railing against two heretics, instead of just getting mad over a property deal. It was, though, enough to literally strike the fear of God in the Duke of Milan. Afraid of an excommunication that could topple his regime, the Duke reneged on his deal with the Signora of Florence 
and instead offered the city to Count Girolamo Riario for a lower price. Apparently in a deliberate effort to pour salt over the wound, Sixtus turned to the Medici Bank and requested they loan Cardinal Pietro the funds, which he could then give to his brother, Count Girolamo, in order to buy the city. News of this leaked out to the public of Florence, who went into an uproar. This put Lorenzo right between the proverbial rock and a hard place. Either cross the Pope, or enrage his people. Lorenzo picked the former option, and ordered the bank manager in Rome to deny Cardinal Pietro the loan. His decision was encouraged by the Duke of Milan, who secretly hoped the deal would fall through, and he could actually keep Amola for himself without enraging the Pope. However, someone else intervened and authorized the loan, allowing Count Girolamo to acquire Imola. And that person was none other than one of the Medici's major banking competitors, Jacopo de Pazzi. It's worth pausing a moment and talking about the Pazzi, who would play a starring role in the tragedy to come. The family took its name from its ancestor, Pazzo, a knight who joined the First Crusade, and one renowned as the First Crusader to climb over the walls of Jerusalem. As a reward, he was given flints chiseled off the altar of the Holy Sepulchre at Jerusalem, which he donated as a relic to the Church of San Apostoli in his native Florence. Another member of the family served as a soldier in the French army and won so much distinction he was granted a shield by no one other than the King of France himself. Under the ordinances of justice, the Pazzi were among the noble families kicked out of the city's politics. Although even among Florence's aristocracy, the family was notorious for their pride, by 1342 the family adapted to the new political circumstances by formally renouncing their noble status and starting a banking business. In order to reach an understanding, Cosimo de' Medici himself arranged to have his granddaughter and Lorenzo's favorite sister, Bianca, betrothed to Jacopo's nephew, Giulielmo de Pazzi. The families were linked, even to the point where Lorenzo and Giulielmo were close friends in childhood. Now, as an adult, Lorenzo saw the Pazzi family as a potential threat that had to be contained. He pulled the strings to make sure the Pazzi usually were only chosen for political offices that were prestigious, but had little real political power. Now, with the Amola deal, the Pazzi had their chance to punch back, and there was practically nothing Lorenzo could do about it. Even then, things might have cooled down eventually, but Sixtus couldn't help but keep poking at the Romagna. As part of an aggressive military campaign to put the petty nobles of the Romagna on a tighter leash, papal forces menaced the Cita di Castello, whose name in English literally means castle town. Like Imola, the Cita di Castello bordered Florentine territory. Even more importantly, its signore Niccolo Vitelli was a personal friend of Lorenzo's and had signed a formal alliance with the signora of Florence. So Florentine forces leaped to the Cita di Castello's defense. 
When the Pope angrily fired off a missive to Lorenzo, he claimed, and probably truthfully, that he couldn't have stopped the Signora from voting to respect their alliance with Niccolò Vitelli. It seems like many rulers around Italy believed Lorenzo had more authority over Florence than he actually did, and Sixtus was no exception. The Pope did not hesitate to escalate matters by vetoing all of the papacy's business arrangements with the Medici Bank, a relationship that had almost continuously lasted since the days of Lorenzo's great-grandfather, Giovanni de' Bici. But the last straw didn't come until after the sudden death of Cardinal Pietro in 1474, the death of his beloved nephew, whom he hoped would one day follow his footsteps into the papacy, so shook Sixtus that there were fears that he had literally gone insane. Still, Sixtus eventually got himself together and moved to put one of his supporters into the empty seat of Archbishop of Florence. Sixtus's candidate was Francesco Salviati, who just so happened to be a relative of the Pazzi. However, according to ancient agreements, the Signora of Florence had a say in who would be their archbishop. With Lorenzo's prompting, they instead accepted Lorenzo's brother-in-law, Rinaldo Orsini, as archbishop. Significantly, Rinaldo wasn't even on the list of candidates the papacy had sent to the Signora. Sixtus retaliated by slotting Francesco Salviati into the recently vacant position of Archbishop of Pisa, which was a post in Florence's sphere of influence, but which the Signora of Florence had no say over. We don't know for sure how much Lorenzo had to do with what happened next, but whatever Lorenzo's opinion on the matter, the Signora voted to bar Salviati from ever setting foot into his new diocese, by force if necessary. Again, in Sixtus's mind it was one man, and not a bunch of elected officials, who was responsible for these continued slights on him and his family. This time, Sixtus thundered that Lorenzo was a, quote, usurping tyrant, and a, quote, depraved and malignant spirit. This was the state of things when the Duke of Milan wrote Lorenzo a mysterious letter, earnestly urging Lorenzo to, quote, keep himself safe and his eyes on what is happening. If such a warning disturbed Lorenzo, he gave no sign in his further correspondence with the Duke. Instead, in his response, he dismissed such warnings as delusions from, quote, a group of malcontents with little standing in the community. Not long after this exchange, on December 26, 1476, three young men approached the Duke on his way to Mass. It made as if they were about to hand him a petition. Instead, they all pulled out daggers and stabbed in his chest. Duke Galeazzo was paranoid enough to always wear a breastplate under his clothes whenever he went out in public, but this day, of all days, he forgot. His killers were all Milanese noblemen, who were educated in the humanist tradition and had romantic views of ancient Rome. They just wanted to follow in the footsteps of the assassins of Julius Caesar and restore the Republic, but also like Caesar's assassins. They had no plan as to what to do once their target was dead. 
This may have been something they realized when they ran through the streets of Milan shouting, Liberty, Liberty, and instead the people shouted back, The Duke, the Duke. After the assassination, Lorenzo wrote to the Duke's widow, Bono Savoy. He promised his support, quote, as long as he had life in his body, and if that failed, he would leave instructions in his will for his sons to do the same. Lorenzo had every reason to be concerned. The Sforza regime survived the assassination, but Duke Galeazzo Maria's heir was a seven-year-old boy, Jean Galeazzo. Lorenzo would also lose another longtime ally, King Ferrante of Naples. When Florence had to stay neutral in the war involving Naples in order to avoid alienating another friend of Lorenzo who ruled a nearby city, King Ferrante left the Florentine camp, finally breaking the old Triple Alliance. Lorenzo de' Medici was vulnerable, and Pope Sixtus IV saw a rare chance to rid himself of a man he viewed not only as an obstacle, but as a relentless enemy. The stage was set for what the historian Bradis Thompson called, quote, one of the most bizarre and grisly episodes in European history. Well, thank you all for listening. Uh, this will be the last episode of the year, but we'll be back with the famous Potsy Conspiracy. Have a wonderful holiday and a great start to your new year.